Hey, it's Alahe. Just a heads up about today's episode. We will include some graphic descriptions of crime scenes. Please take care while listening. So I, I see an item in the Oklahoman, the local newspaper there, saying that there is this really grisly discovery of human remains. That's Post reporter and Oklahoma native Hannah Alam. I'm on the national security team covering domestic terrorism, violent extremism, and armed groups. This story in the Oklahoman caught Hannah's interest. So immediately my ears perk up. This is exactly what I cover on my extremism beat. And it's about these remains that have been found and the possibility that the investigation involved a white supremacist prison gang. The details were shocking. The newspaper reported that hundreds of pounds of dirt had been taken from the scene and that forensic investigators were going through this pile of dirt to look for human remains and bones and and any kind of clue as to what happened. The newspaper article didn't really have any answers about what happened. So Hannah told herself that if I just show up in person, of course local law enforcement would love to talk to me about it. Gosh, Oklahoma authorities, I'm sure, will be so eager to show off their investigation. This is a really big and intricate and sensitive investigation. Yeah, I'll just fly down there and have a good conversation. But when she got down there, no law enforcement officers were willing to speak with her on the record. It became very clear to me very quickly that this was one of the most sensitive investigations the state had dealt with in recent years, that lives were at stake, uh, the lives of informants, of, of victims' families, um, and sort of anyone even tangentially involved. I, and I know you go, this couldn't be true. None of this could be true. But it, that's the most bizarre part about it. It is. It's just crazy. Seriously crazy. People would say, this is a wild case. This is a kind of case you see in the movies. This is a strangest case of my career. But I can't talk about it. So, of course, I'm a reporter. That makes me want to dig even more and understand why. So Hannah dug. And what she discovered was a web of missing people and grieving residents. And at the supposed center of that web is the Universal Aryan Brotherhood. They're numerous, they're large, they're very violent, and, and they're dangerous. There's just no other way to describe them. I mean, you know, you hear snitches get stitches, right? That's like the, right, the, the old same. line. No, with the Universal Aryan Brotherhood and groups like it, snitches get blowtorch, a shovel, a tarp, and they are never seen again. From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, April 21st. Today, Hannah's investigation into how a white supremacist prison gang terrified a community and the families still searching for their missing loved ones. They just disappeared in thin air, girl. What? No evidence at all? Come on. Where is his bike? Where is his backpack? Where is his jacket? Where is my son? So, Hannah, you went home to Oklahoma, which is where you're from, to look into this story. 
mean, it is pretty up here. I see why you like it. <laughs> it's nice. It's, um, it's really quiet now. So Carol Knight's a bail bond agent, very successful bail bond agent in Oklahoma City. And one afternoon this summer, I go over to her property in Choctaw, Oklahoma. And we get into this little all-terrain golf cart vehicle she has to work on her property. I'm working on clearing this hole, filling Mm -hmm. it in. She buys this property in 2020. She thinks she's going to build this dream home there. She thinks that that's that's going to be her retirement home, and then she finds all this trash and stuff. This was covered with tires. I'll have to see if I can find a picture of it. Acres of property that are just absolutely littered with junk. We hauled out somewhere, I would guess, somewhere around 300 tires. With electronics, with clothing, with all any kind of goods you can imagine. We dug up a car. We dug up a motorcycle. We hauled three boats off of the property. Some of it is just so bizarre. Um, That's why I don't have a pool. That's why I don't have brick. I do, however, have a chop chop. Some of it she was finding with serial numbers scratched off. She was finding big storage containers as if they'd been taken from a storage unit and emptied out there on the property. Okay, this all sounds pretty strange. And also it sounds like whatever was happening on that property before Carol bought it wasn't on the up and up. Is that right? That's exactly right. I mean, the whole property was just dotted with these signs of potentially nefarious activities that the previous residents had been up to. And here she was finding it in her backyard. And this was no secret in the area. All the neighbors sort of knew that there was criminal activity going on at this property. And, you know, it was known as a, as a fairly rough bunch. And Carol, you know, she is a tough woman who operates in, I would say, an overwhelmingly male world of bail bondsmen and sort of the justice system and law enforcement. This is a community that she works in, socializes in, operates in. And so she hears things and people tell her things. And one day... Someone called her and told her, hey, Carol, you might have a body on your property. I mean, are you worried personally? You know, partly I think when you're dealing with people like this, um, you always have to expect the unexpected. So I wouldn't say worried. I would always say uh, cautious and paranoid. Because paranoia keeps you, you know, keeps you on your toes. She stopped work on the property. She stopped clearing it off. And she said, you know, I just, I don't want that feeling of, you know, what if we build over something? What if we ruin the only chance that there is for this family to find this person? We're now kind of in a holding pattern. I'm ready to get to work on it. Mm-hmm. But if there's a dead body up there... You're never going to find me. So that was mainly it for you. It was a conscience thing. Sure. I mean, like you just didn't want the idea of paving over somebody. Or, or, you know. Yeah, I mean, if we just buried it, that, that's just not right. And, and if somebody killed him, they need to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. So she learns that 
the person at the heart of this sort of missing person report is a man named David Anthony Orr. Orr is a Hispanic man who had not long ago been released from a long prison sentence. He was a longtime methamphetamine user. You know, he struggled with addiction for many, many years. And when he got out, he fell back in with a drug crowd, essentially, that included some of these people that were hanging out at at Carol's property. And among that crowd was a man named Jason Cornett. Officials say or was last heard from on January 16th, 2021. And at that time, family members said he was staying with this couple, Jason Cornett and his wife, Elizabeth. And David Orr, he becomes one of these many people who are connected to the methamphetamine underground in this area who just vanishes without a trace. Were police looking into this? So authorities, they'd been looking into this case for quite some time and were receiving tips that he might have been killed and buried on a rural property somewhere around the Oklahoma City area. But there were very few details, and authorities were really tight-lipped about that investigation. And later, Carol and others involved in the investigation would figure out why. And why was that? The secrecy around this whole investigation that started with David Orr and has now branched out to, to many others relates to the fact that authorities suspect the involvement of a violent white supremacist prison gang called the Universal Aryan Brotherhood. Authorities have not said this on the record. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation says it will not comment on rumors and things like that. But privately, and on condition of anonymity so that they can speak freely about this investigation, I have had Oklahoma officials tell me that the Universal Aryan Brotherhood is the reason for this extreme sensitivity and security precautions. So, wait, the Universal Aryan Brotherhood, did they target David or because he was Hispanic? Like, how does this work? The UAB is a white supremacist organization, but how it chooses targets is complicated. It might be helpful to step back and give some background here. Prison gangs are a national problem. They have been for years. But Oklahoma especially has a real problem with these gangs, and that's according to Mark Pitkovich. The three big ones are the United Aryan Brotherhood, mm-hmm. the Universal Aryan Brotherhood, and the Oklahoma Aryan Brotherhood. So Mark is an extremism researcher for the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, and he's like a walking encyclopedia of these groups. He has studied the Universal Aryan Brotherhood and groups like it for many, many years. And and all of them are kind of murdery. So Mark says Oklahoma is actually unusual in that here's this medium-sized state with prison gangs operating there, as well as a number of other smaller organizations related to that world. And so when it comes to the Universal Aryan Brotherhood specifically, do we know how and where they operate? So the Universal Aryan Brotherhood, it's known as the UAB, and it came out of Oklahoma 
prison systems in the 90s and has since grown into a very violent operation that has a network around the state that's involved in criminal activity both behind bars but also out in the free world. The degree to which they can do so effectively or the degree to which they can do so consistently kind of depends upon their own internal unity and integrity. So the gangs that are able to create the strongest subculture, the strongest gang ties, the most allegiance to the group are the ones most able effectively to operate as gangs out on the streets as well. And some extremism researchers say it's a bit of of a misnomer to even call it a prison gang because it has these tentacles that spread far outside and into various criminal activities, primarily drug trafficking, but also instances of other forms of violence. Escapes, drug rings, attempted murder of a Jewish inmate, and especially murders, um, because, you know, I track extremist-related murders, and every year I do a report. Um, I pulled this up. Um, four definite Universal Aryan Brotherhood murders and one possible one that I, I have not uh, actually been able to confirm yet. All of these are real-world murders, you know, on-the-street murders, not murders behind bars. So Mark Pitkevich of the ADL describes white supremacist prison gangs as this really pernicious problem because they're not easily uprooted. Um, there have been attempts to break them up by, say, sending leaders to other prisons in other states. Well, he said they end up just starting new factions and new gangs over there. So that hasn't worked. Um, they are extremely adept at smuggling into prison, you know, contraband, even drugs, and essentially they have their leadership behind bars in prison calling the shots on the outside, and those outside actions will be carried out by a network of enforcers who might go collect a drug debt, intimidate, or even assault or kill a rival. Basically, as Mark Pickhavage explained it to me, If you lock up a bank robber, the bank robberies stop for a period of time. But you can put a Universal Aryan Brotherhood person in prison, and they can continue their activities. And what's the role of the white supremacist ideology in in their organization and operation? It's the organizing principle. You know, I mean, they're organizing inside prison by race for protection, for access to contraband, for support, and, you know, friendship. And so it's very much a race-based membership. I mean, Oklahoma authorities call it a whites-only prison gang. Um, It's a little more complicated when it comes to, you know, who they target and how, you know, the role that race plays in their targeting. Certainly, there have been incidents where inside and outside of prison, UAB members have been accused of hateful attacks, like actual racially motivated or bias-motivated attacks, but mostly they keep their violent activity on the outside confined to the drug world. And it's really about, you know, rivals, informants, people within their own organization who they suspect might be talking to cops or, you know, snitching, as they say. So they recruit around that ideology. You know, it's a whites-only prison gang. That's how the authorities talk about it. 
And so you see more of that ideological component, I would say, behind bars. But out in the streets, they often just function as a criminal enterprise. Mm. So you have people like Mark Pickhavage, someone who studied this group for a really long time, explaining that it functions as both a hate group and a criminal syndicate, which makes it twice as dangerous. Of course, I, I look at a lot of different types of extremists. Some of the nastiest incidents I looked at were related to white supremacist prison gangs. Some really vicious, really vicious and cold-blooded things. This poses a huge challenge for law enforcement officials. They have tried to address it in, in various ways, you know, sending these prison leaders to other states. Well, what they found is that they start new gangs in those states. They are still finding contraband that gets into the prisons. They are still able to organize, plan, and carry out attacks from these leaders who are behind bars. These groups seem to be growing and becoming more violent. So who is the prison leader of the Universal Aryan Brotherhood? Is there one person? Are there many people? Like, who are authorities targeting here? So it's really hard to say for sure. I mean, this is not a corporation where you can go look at a board of directors right. online. I mean, it's a very shadowy organization. There are competing claims to leadership. But one person who whose name keeps coming up in relation to this case and other cases involving the Universal Aryan Brotherhood is a man named Michael Smith. He goes by Bulldog, so Michael Bulldog Smith. And he is in prison. He's in prison for life. But as we saw from court papers and from talking with authorities involved in this case, he is still communicating with his enforcers and this wider network of UAB operatives that are on the outside. Meanwhile, Carol Knight is not aware of this. She's not thinking about it. She's just figured out or was told or has a suspicion there's a body on her property. So what does she do with that information? She calls her friend Jathan Hunt. He's a fellow bail bondsman and a private investigator. And she says, um, hey, Jay, why don't you bring your dogs out to my property and see if I have a body? Jathan Hunt is a fascinating person to me because he grew up understanding violent extremism. His parents were both working in the federal building that was bombed in the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm. So he kind of grew up in the shadow of this massive domestic terrorism investigation and, and tragedy. But he didn't want to go into law enforcement per se, but he, he likes searching and digging and, and looking into these cases. And so he became a bail bondsman and a private detective where he does that kind of work, you know, sort of on his own terms. I mean, um, all this PI work and this type of stuff, we all do this voluntarily. I feel a moral obligation to the community as a whole. I don't know if you've looked at my Facebook, but I, this is my way of giving back to my community. It's partly a faith-driven mission for him. Mm. He's a conservative Christian, as are many of the people involved in this story. And what it led to meeting him was there's this whole network I'd never heard of, of volunteers motivated by civic duty, by religion, faith, spirituality, you know, their own experiences. They spend their volunteer time 
any time they have, going around the state, helping families of missing people find clues, interact with authorities, basically just act as helpers to these families. So she asks Jathan to come search her property. How did that go? I think first search conditions weren't good, the weather was bad, and the the area was overgrown. And so they had to wait for conditions to improve. And then Jathan Hunt, along with several other volunteer searchers, they come to the property. They have these specially trained German shepherds that have been through all these courses on clandestine grave detection and basically what we used to call cadaver dogs or cadaver sniffing. But now it's a much more involved training. And so they they run these dogs on the property. They do searches on the property. And, and you know, they find some piles of bones that maybe an animal had sort of collected. And they go through these bones. And among them were some that they worried looked like human bones. And so they say, whoa, stop. Let's call Oklahoma County investigators. So the investigators show up. She put those remains in a brown paper bag, Mm -hmm. um, and she brought them back. And I asked her before she put them in the car, I said, would you mind just setting that down for me? And she said, sure. So I got my dog out of the backseat of my car, and I told her, go find. And she went right up to that bag. She couldn't see what was visually in there. But she laid right down, and that was her alert. And then she goes, huh, that's weird. And I said, I know, right? And she goes, that's crazy. And then she put it in the trunk of her car and drove off. And that was the last Jathan Hunt and Carol Knight heard about what happened to those bones. So what did Jathan do after that? Jathan is someone who, he likes to search. He likes to dig into these cases and find answers. And it bothered him that he's hearing about this missing man, David Anthony Orr, and that the search was inconclusive. So he kept thinking about this man, this missing person. And then he says, gosh, this is so weird because he was telling me, you know, usually on cases that I work, the families are so eager to go on TV, to make posters, to say, you know, my, my loved one's missing. Help me find him. There was no family posting, where's David Orr? I couldn't believe that. Um, why? And, and that was one of those things that stuck out to me, and I was trying to figure out why. And we he said there was out. nothing like that hmm. for a David Orr. He said that's so bizarre. So he keeps making inquiries, and he makes contact with the family, and David Orr has a family that loves him very much and would love to know more about what happened to him, but they are terrified to even ask or even to put up a missing poster. Any missing poster signs put up for David or were most likely created by Jathan himself because the family was just too scared to even declare him missing. I talked to one relative of, of David Orr's who told me that early in the search, they were approached by associates of David Orr's And they said, you need to quit searching or else you're going to end up just like him. To them, it is a fact that he's dead. They've been told that in various ways. The information has reached them, but it's inconclusive. Can they prove it? Will they ever be able to prove it? 
So there's the problem. They're, they don't have a, a body or remains to bury. They they don't have any kind of any kind of sense of closure whatsoever. So there is still that glimmer of hope that maybe he's out there, but that's that's not how it's treated on the street. And Jason is still out there, still investigating this. Yes. So he keeps looking and keeps pulling threads and finding witnesses and finding people who know him and interviewing his associates and he realizes that they all overlap. You know, him, several other missing person cases, the connection to all of that is the Universal Aryan Brotherhood. And it's this connection that leads authorities to a compound and some gruesome discoveries. We'll be right back. So there's Carol Knight's property that Jathan was called out to, and they investigated. They dug up bones, and they don't know exactly who or what those bones are. But was that the only place they were looking for David Anthony Orr's body? So as Jathan Hunt, the private investigator, kept searching, looking into the David Orr case, he kept hearing that, um, okay, so his body might not be at Carol Knight's. It might be at this other property in Logan County, and it's it's kind of a rural property. He didn't really have many key details. He didn't have an address, but he had this general description. So he immediately tries to tell authorities, and he kind of gets the brush off. As he says, look, I'm a private investigator. Some of those guys don't think I'm a real investigator. And some of them are annoyed and think, you know, hey, it's our turf. Right, you right. know, It's our job. Back it's, off. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and so for those and probably other reasons, he got the brush off. And so he finally calls a lead detective on the case and reaches him and says, hey, I've been getting credible tips that David Orr's body might be on this property in Logan County, and there might be others there too. And he says that the detective responds, "Um, okay, that matches kind of what we're hearing, but I want you to sit on this. We've got something in the works. And the next thing Jathan knows, he hears about this raid on this compound, and it matched the description that he'd been told. Wow. Wow. So this raid happens last April 13th. They were acting on a tip related to David Orr and possibly others being out there. Authorities told me that at dawn on that day, dozens of law enforcement officers from so many different agencies, there were federal authorities out there as well, they all arrive at daybreak to execute this um, search warrant on this compound in Logan County. And is this the compound that you had read about in the local newspaper, the the one that got you interested in this whole story? Yes, this was the same compound I'd been reading about and uh, one the authorities had warned me against going out to see. They said it's quite dangerous. They also just had this real secrecy around the investigation. And what did this compound look like? So it's interesting because I describe it in the story as a rural compound, and it is. But it's not rural in the sense of deep in the woods. Mm. I mean, you drive 15, 20 minutes, you're in a major metropolitan area. But it is secluded and rural. 
And it's down this dirt road, and you, and you go down into the woods, and you see there's cute cottages, little nice cabins, well-maintained lawns, and then you keep going, and then you see something that looks sort of out of place. This this property had 10-foot metal stockade fences all the way around it. This 10-foot metal fence that looks very sort of forbidding and keep off the property, private property signs. Yeah. It is, it's not a welcoming place. And behind those walls, that's where the remains were found. And in fact, we were told by several authorities, you know, you should never go there unarmed. And, you know, we said, well, what if we try to photograph by drone? They'll shoot it out of the sky. I mean, those were the kinds wow. of things authorities were telling us about even going to visit. The first time we went to look at the compound, we just drove by and we didn't dare stop. The second time, we went with sort of backup. Were you scared? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I mean, you've, like, covered war before. It was scary, and it was just deeply unsettling because here I am making plans for, okay, safety. We're going to go here. We're going to take backup. We're going to take two cars. We're going to do this yeah. and that. And these are tactics and— this is the MO when I go out to interview militants in Iraq or right. <laughs> Syria or something like that. It was it's just so strange that here it is, like, right where I went to high school. Yeah, like, exactly where you're from. And it didn't seem like, you know, many people wanted you to be talking about this. But what do we know about what they found? So far, they've confirmed the remains of at least three people there. But Everyone that I've talked to, uh, all the authorities involved, have told me that number could be much higher. In fact, they're looking at up to a dozen disappearances in the area, checking names and DNA samples and checking with family members, asking for dental records. And so they are looking at a number of people, a number of missing persons cases, as they try to identify who's there and, and what happened to them. There are very real security concerns with this. I mean, every single person involved has told me that the families are absolutely terrified. I think some of the law enforcement are scared. I mean, these prison gangs have killed prosecutors and law enforcement officials in the past. They are very bloody and violent gangs. And so there, there is that. But I think that there's also this undercurrent of all these questions swirling as well. You know, who's in charge? If someone was killed over here, but their body's over here, who's responsible for that? And so there's all these jurisdictional issues, turf issues. Mm -hmm. There's local, state, and federal involved. And so I, I think that it's just also a complicated case. Were you able to speak with any of the families of those missing people? Yes, I spoke with several. What did they tell you? So what they're experiencing is just unimaginable pain because, you know, they have the pain that comes from just having a missing relative. You know, yeah. they, that person is vanished, you know, in mysterious circumstances. And then you hear that remains were found, and you're being asked for DNA and dental records. And then on top of that, there's the uncertainty of waiting months and months and months to even know if your 
loved one is among these remains that were found charred, burned in pieces at this property. But they also were frustrated with the pace of the investigation, with the level of information they were getting from authorities. They they wanted to know more, and they wanted to know faster, and they didn't understand why, after all these months, can you tell me if my son or daughter is in that pile of bones or not? Can you tell me about someone who did speak with you? Yes, LaVon Harris shared the story of her search for her son, Nathan Smith, who vanished a couple years ago on a cold January night down a dirt road in Oklahoma, and she has been searching for him ever ever since. And it's been a terrifying and lonely search. She says, you know, the detectives have long stopped calling her. It's really just up to her to keep this case active. But she said at the same time she's constrained because she's scared to ask too many questions or to poke around too much. And it's taken a real toll on her and her family, you know, this um, double whammy of losing someone and not being able to to really look for them. When somebody's missing, the family don't know where to go, who to talk to. If the cops ain't, you know, doing their job or very interested, then what do you do? You're devastated as it is. And then she talked about that day that she found out that these remains were found not too far from where Nathan had disappeared. And she also said that early in the search, she had had a family friend over and they were going through Nathan's social media contacts and they were looking for any kind of clues, like who would know where he is? You know, how does someone just vanish in thin air? And this family friend said, oh gosh, look, here's all these connections of his, and they are in white supremacist prison gangs. They're doing the gang signs. They've got the tattoos, whatever it was. And LeVon said, Oh my gosh, what has my son got into? Because a lot of these people that were, they were associates. They weren't his friend. They were, they're, they're in the Aryan Brotherhood. You know, when she found out then that this this compound, this property where remains were found, had ties to a white supremacist prison gang, her heart sank. I mean, she thought, well, he's probably out there. I mean, this is a really difficult question, but I mean, if if your son is identified as among the findings there in Logan County, what does that mean for you and for your search and for your family? I can, it will never be, there will never be closure for me. There just won't be. I will will never get over it. And I'm forever scarred there. I forever got a piece of me missing. And then maybe I can learn how to live without that piece, you know? I just, it would bring relief. And then also, when it hurt really bad. So you can hear there in her voice the pain of not knowing. She has not received confirmation about whether Nathan is or isn't there. Many other families are also waiting for news. 
The state investigators say, you have to understand, these bones are in really bad shape. They've been charred. Uh, they've been out in the elements, and it's going to take months if there is at all a possibility to identify them. I, I should say, Levon has received one update. Last month in March, the state investigators announced a $10,000 reward for information about Nathan's whereabouts. And so she does take that as, you know, there's some movement in the case, and people are out there still looking for her son. I feel like I've heard about the UAB way less often than, let's say, other extremist groups like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. And I'm having trouble squaring that because they sound almost like they are more violent. Absolutely. And the Anti-Defamation League and other groups that track white supremacist prison gangs will tell you this is the fastest growing and the deadliest part of the white supremacist movement in the United States, but it's probably the part we know least about as a mm -hmm. public because a lot of their violence is concentrated in these criminal underworlds where people go missing and people don't necessarily call the cops. People go missing and it's too dangerous for them to tell. So these are underreported, undercovered issues. And a lot of the families said that they felt like maybe there wasn't as much attention or interest because they feel like their loved ones have been written off as, oh, those were people with addictions or they had gang histories themselves or maybe they did long prison terms. And so they just weren't seen as sympathetic victims. And they said, you know, like David Orr's family, one of his relatives told me, yes, he had a meth addiction and he came out of a prison sentence, a long prison sentence. And they said, you know, he could have beaten it. He could have had the opportunity to beat that struggle, and they took that from him. And Hannah, when you first reported on, on all of this for The Post back in the fall, have there been any more recent developments in this case since then? Yes. At the time that I was reporting the story, there weren't any named suspects. There weren't any public arrests made. And now, here we are almost a year since these crimes are reported that we have arrests. And among them was Jason Cornett and his wife, Elizabeth, who we talked about earlier, who David Orr was staying with at the time of his disappearance. In fact, the very next day after he was last seen, Elizabeth Cornett, investigators said, was seen on surveillance camera using David Orr's food stamp card at a local grocery store. So this is a couple that had been on authorities' radar for some time, and investigators execute a search warrant, and they find what is ultimately determined to be um, blood that matches DNA samples from David Orr. And all of that's laid out in the, in the court papers that charge Cornett with first-degree murder, removal of a body, and desecration of a human corpse. We did try to reach out to the attorneys representing Cornette and the others who are charged in this case. Um, we emailed, we called, we left messages, and uh, we got no response. Uh, we do know that not guilty pleas were entered for them. And the focus had really been on Jason Cornette. Jason Cornette, at the time of reporting 
we weren't quite sure what his relationship was to the UAB. We knew he hung out in those same circles, that he'd been at that property, that people we were talking to sort of put him in that milieu and in that world. But it wasn't until we saw the search warrant affidavits after he was arrested that he considered Michael Bulldog Smith, the presumed leader of the UAB, he considered him an uncle. He called him uncle. We don't know if this means a, there was a biological connection right. or it's like street uncle, like you unk, know, yeah. unk. Yeah, but there was familiarity there at the very least. Um, and also the search warrant affidavit showed us Another thing that we were really trying to pin down, which was how much did Michael Smith know about these disappearances, the investigation, and all this murkiness of what was going on at this compound? And it turns out from the witnesses quoted in the search warrant affidavit and other court papers that he was deeply involved. And the witnesses in these court papers have him ordering hits, getting angry about the sloppiness, where to put bodies, um, you're going to bring heat on us. You know, they really painted a picture of a leader who, despite being in prison for life, uh, had a firm control and command over his operations in the free world. So what is next in this investigation and for you and your reporting? Um... Well, I'm going to be continuing to follow this right. investigation, as are uh, Jathan Hunt and, and and others. I'm following up on, on this, following the long process of identification. Uh, I was told that, you know, the remains are in such bad condition that that process could take quite a while. And there's just still so many answered, unanswered questions. We don't know for sure how many bodies, how many people, how many sets of human remains are there on that compound. And we've heard of other sites being investigated too. What this case offers is a window into investigations and in a world that is very secret, very dangerous, and we usually don't see it. You know, setting even the case aside, there's a dozen or more disappearances from one area where people just sort of vanished. And this might be just the tip of the iceberg. Hannah, thanks for bringing us your reporting. Thank you. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Eliza Dennis. It was edited by Rena Flores. It was mixed by Sean Carter. And thanks to Rennie Svernofsky and Peter Finn. Our team also includes Maggie Penman, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Lucy Perkins, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, and Renita Jablonski. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>